Chapter 23 Twisted Reality Getting Sucked into Your Surroundings The Gerer Rebbe, the Imri Amis, Chus said that when Mashiach comes, there will be two forms of redemption. One, to take us out of Golos, and the other, to take the Golos out of us. And the second one, he said, is much more difficult than the first. Hashem sets up every stage of our exile to consist of various levels of physical and psychological challenges. The Torah tells us, 1. And Hashem saved Yisrael that day from the hands of the Egyptians. 2. And then Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. And then three, And then Yisrael saw the great hand that Hashem inflicted upon Egypt. And then four, And then Moshe and Bnei Yisrael sang this song. The Nesiva Shalom points out something fantastic. It seems like the order is not correct. The order of number two and number three seems to be backward because first they saw Hashem's mighty hand and only after did they see the Egyptians dead on the seashore. So why does it say that first Klal Yisrael saw their Egyptian oppressors dead on the seashore and then they recognized that Hashem did take them out of Mitzrayim, which happened beforehand? Furthermore, why did we wait until we saw all the Egyptians dead on the seashore in order to sing praises to Hashem? Why didn't we sing praises to Hashem as soon as we left Mitzrayim after 210 years of being enslaved and trapped within their borders? So let's review this again. There are four psukim in the Torah, and you'll see that it seemingly is out of order. The first pasuk, Hashem saved Yisrael from Mitzrayim. Then, Yisrael saw Mitzrayim dead on the seashore. Cool. Then, Yisrael saw the Yad HaGdoyla Asha Asa Hashem b'Mitzrayim. Then they saw the great hand of Hashem with all the miracles that Hashem did That's that Wasn't that before? And then, Az Yashir Moshe, and we sang praise. So, this is the question of the Nesiva Shalom. Things seem to be out of order. Slaves on the run. The Sipurnu says something fantastic. Even after we were physically marched out of the land of Egypt, and we were technically free, as long as the forces of Mitzrayim that abused us for so long were alive and well, the Jewish mindset was that of Avadim Barchim, slaves on the run. Every step towards our new free life was taken while looking over our shoulder, worried that our Egyptian masters will somehow once again grab us and bring us back into captivity. Therefore, although physically we were free, we were still not psychologically free people, since running away from someone or something still means that they are controlling you. And then the Nesiva Shalom brings out such an amazing point. You know why it says that first we saw Mitzrayim dead and then we saw what Hashem did to us in Mitzrayim, which was before? 
כי רק לאחר ששבו וסקליפס מצרים, הגיעו לתכלס של וירא ישראל לסיוד הגדולה אשר עושה השם במצרים. It was only after our oppressors were officially pronounced dead, the nightmare was over. It was only then that we were truly free of their psychological stranglehold. Only at that time, with the psychological shackles broken and the nightmare truly over, were we able to reflect back with a clear mind and express our appreciation and gratitude for everything that Hashem did for us throughout the entire redemption process. This means in simple terms that while we were still slaves, we did not appreciate all the miracles that Hashem did. Yes, he did crazy stuff. Dam, Tzvardeya, Kinim, Arav. He turned over the world. He shocked the Egyptians. But we were still slaves. So we couldn't have proper appreciation for what was being done to us and for us. But once we were finally, finally, finally free, and our enemy, our, our enemy of life, whatever it is that was chasing us, the addiction was dead. Then we look back and say, wow, look what Hashem did for us. Amazing, damn, tzvardeya. And we were able to appreciate all the things that were done to us while we were still enslaved. And now we understand the order perfectly. And Hashem saved Yisrael on that day from Mitzrayim, right? And then once Yisrael saw the Egyptians physically dead upon the seashore and the nightmare was truly over, then Pasuk number three, and then Yisrael, who was now psychologically free from the grip of their masters and able to look back, they saw the great hand and appreciated all the miracles that Hashem inflicted upon Egypt. And now the fourth Pasuk, now they could truly appreciate what Hashem did for them. And so, Az Yashir Moshe and Yisrael, now Moshe and Yisrael were able to sing the song. It's amazing how these four psukim have so much depth to them. The first lesson we learned was, until the oppressor was dead, until the person was truly saved psychologically and physically and in every way, they were avadim barachim. They had the mindset of slaves on the run. And the second thing that we learned was that we couldn't appreciate even the greatest things being done for us as long as we were enslaved. And only when the slavery was over, when the person was truly freed, could he appreciate everything being done for him until that point. Today's Galus. The Svasema says, The Galus of Mitzrayim is the Shairish, the root, and the source of all exiles, and the redemption of Egypt. The Geulas Mitzrayim is the source of all future redemptions. And this is why we remind ourselves of Yitzias Mitzrayim every single day of our lives. Did you ever think about that? Why are we constantly saying, everything is Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim? Why? That's what Sema says, because it's very relevant to us today. Because the Galas Mitzrayim is the Shairish of all Galias. And the Geulas Mitzrayim is the Hachana of all Geulas. The redemption of Mitzrayim is the preparation, the blueprint of all redemptions. When we carefully study what transpired in Mitzrayim, we will uncover what brought about our redemption, and then we will discover practical steps to bring redemption to our own lives. In today's day and age, we are once again exposed to the lowly ideals of our surrounding society, and these ideals slowly, maybe not so slowly, creep and seep 
deep into our minds and eat away at our pure Yiddish mindset, just like in Mitzrayim. On a constant and continuous basis, each and every Yiddish neshama anywhere in the world is exposed to an increasingly immoral world that brazenly flaunts that which was once considered private, even by their standards, just a few short decades ago. We are each exposed to more immodesty and immoral behavior than any of our grandparents could have possibly been exposed to, even if they were looking for it. And all of that is delivered to our doorstep, is brought to us, even if we don't want it. Let's bring an example to prove the point. Deadliest Weapons Several years ago, there was a debate between two radio personalities about what the United States should do about Cuba. One claimed that the only way to deal with Cuba was by increasing sanctions against them. The other person said that sanctions never work. All it does is make the country more isolated and more resentful, which in turn makes them harbor more animosity toward America, which in turn gives the dictator even more power. The moderator then asked, okay, if you believe that sanctions won't work, then, okay, how do you suggest we deal with Cuba? And he responded brilliantly, I suggest that we send in our two most powerful weapons, McDonald's and Blockbuster. And in just a few short years, the Cubans will become Americanized, and we won't need to worry about them anymore. The influence of McDonald's that represents the concept of fast food and the destruction of family dinner time and the transmission of values from the powerful father seated at the head of the table, along with the influence of blockbuster movies, which would fill their time and minds with fantasy and lustful desires, would automatically change their Cuban mindset and transform them from Cubans into Americans who happen to be living in Cuba. This is a life lesson for us to internalize. The Rambam says, A person's thoughts and actions are naturally influenced by his friends and acquaintances, and a person fashions himself after the people of his country. Do you think that you're not affected by the society that surrounds you? Think again. Let's bring an example. To prove the point. Under the influence. Even if you might not dress as up-to-date as the latest fashion styles, you are constantly influenced by the fashion culture that somehow slowly affects our sense of style. Glasses that were once fashionably in are now completely out and look like a silly joke. Just imagine attending a fancy wedding, immaculately dressed in accordance with the style of 30 years ago. Everyone would stare and laugh at how silly you look. Ties go thin, then wide, then thin. Glasses go round, then square, then big, then small. Hairstyles go from flat to poofy. Colors and cut of our clothing all have dramatically changed and continue to change decade after decade. Remember bell bottoms? Amazingly, our own internal opinion of what we think looks nice completely changes solely due to the influence dictated by the fashion world that surrounds us, to the extent that a stylish, expensive name-brand outfit from 30 years ago would be nothing more than an absolutely hilarious Purim outfit. 
I just took out my hat from four years ago, my Shabbos hat, and it looked like a big joke. And I paid so much money for that hat. What changed? Osmosis. Regardless of how sheltered a person may try to be, we are all constantly being attacked and influenced by the values and lifestyle of things around us, like McDonald's and Blockbuster. The Torah says that the description of the Jewish people is that we are Goy Kadosh, a holy nation. Goy Kadosh is not just a nice little catchy title, but it is the very foundation of our nation's existence, and it defines our very essence. And therefore, nothing is more painful to a holy Yiddish and Neshama than to be immersed in the filthy atmosphere of an impure hedonistic, and adulterous society. The constant influence of the world around us is slowly eating away at our pure Yiddish mindset, dripping in thoughts and ideas that corrupt and dull our spiritually sensitive nerve endings. Let's bring an example to prove the point. Boiling point. The boiling frog theory states that although a frog placed in boiling water will jump right out in order to save itself, however, when a frog is placed in cool water that is heated very slowly, it will continually become accustomed to the gradual rise in temperature and will never make the decision that it is time to jump out, and it will eventually be boiled alive. The story is generally told in a figurative context, with the upshot being that people should make themselves aware of gradual change, lest they suffer a catastrophic loss. If we simply go with the flow, then we are in terrible danger of slowly drifting away from our connection to holiness, without even being aware that a battle has been waged and a battle has been lost. We find this concept clearly in the Torah. The Torah says, When Light split from his uncle Avram Avinu and went on his own, it says that he pitched his tent until Sedaim, Ad Sedaim, meaning until the border of Sedaim. After all, Light had been previously living with the holy Avram Avinu for so many years and therefore he would never have considered being an actual citizen of Sedaim, the lowest spiritual place on earth. So he set up his tent until Sedaim. However, in the very next chapter, the Torah tells us that Light and his belongings were captured, and he was living Bistaim, in Sedaim. What happened? He started off one chapter before, oh, I'm not going into Sedaim. He set up until Sedaim. And then one chapter later, all of a sudden, where is light? This time he's in Sedaim. In fact, Chazal teach us that on that very day that he was captured, he was appointed as a judge of Sedaim. This means that he was enough of an expert in their laws to represent the government and enforce their corrupt values on the citizens. He was a professional Sedaim guy. He really understood and internalized their lowly ideals to the point he could be part of the government. So we need to wonder, what happened to him? How did he go from being an outsider to becoming an insider? The Sefer Nesiva Emes explains, perhaps the answer is as follows. Although Light was attracted to the wicked lifestyle of Sedaim, 
After living for so many years near the holy and charitable Avramavinu, he could not bring himself to actually move into such a despicable, impure, and selfish atmosphere. However, just living near the exceedingly wicked sinners of Sodom was enough to pull him in closer and closer automatically through osmosis until he became mamish, one of them. The Torah shows us a great lesson. The Torah teaches us that in a relatively short span of time, from one chapter in the Torah to the next, light transformed into a full-fledged Sodomnik. Let's bring this closer to home. Sadly, we can see the same concept by looking at our current situation. Imagine a non-religious Jew heading to the beach on Shabbos in his Porsche convertible with his Gaisha wife and two puppies while smoking a cigar and munching on a fresh bacon and egg sandwich. If Mashiach would approach him with the great news that Hashem finally decided to rescue him from this horrible gullus and bring him to Yerushalayim to live a holy, pure, spiritual life, would he be interested? The horrific, heartbreaking truth is that there are currently about 5 million unaffiliated Jews in America who would not be at all interested in being, quote-unquote, rescued from this horrible exile. They don't even realize that they're in exile. And that's about 80% of us, eerily, the same percentage as way back in Mitzrayim that did not want to be rescued. We see clearly that far worse than the physical exile itself is the disease that slowly infects our spiritual brain cells and eats away at our Yiddish consciousness to the point that we become oblivious to the fact that we are even in exile. Let's bring an example to prove the point. There was once a wealthy billionaire who was forced to expel his beloved son from his home. After many years, one of the close family friends happened to meet that son. After chatting with him, he asked the son, Is there anything you would like me to ask your father on your behalf? The estranged son replied, Oh, that's a great idea. I get bored at night in my basement apartment. Can you please ask my dad to send me a laptop? Upon hearing these words, the friend could no longer contain himself. He broke down and cried. Have you strayed so far that you have already disconnected yourself from remembering who you are and where you belong? Why not ask me to beg your father to allow you to come back home? As time passes, we tend to forget where we came from and who we are. When we have a chance to speak directly to our Father Hashem, our King, we should not ask Him for the things to make us comfortable away from our home. Rather, we should beg Him to finally bring us home. Let's bring an example to prove the point. Empty Words a famous story is told of a simple man who led a very inspirational Seder on Pesach night. And finally, at the end of the long evening, they came to the emotional words that we all say, L'shana haba b'yushalayim, next year in Jerusalem. The man was overwhelmed with emotion. He burst out in song, clapping and dancing with great emotion. L'shana haba b'yushalayim. Oh, he was enjoying a real spiritual moment. He was so into it and his transcendent spirit soared 
but then was disturbed by the soft sounds of his wife sobbing. Puzzled, he asked, What's wrong? She sobbed, I, I don't want to go to Jerusalem. I, I love it here. I love my nice big house and my new luxurious car. I don't want to live in those tiny little claustrophobic apartments in Meisharim. I, I don't want to do sponja. He turned to her with a warm, reassuring smile and he said, Relax, it's only a song. Psychological slavery, victim mentality, Stockholm Syndrome occurs when the victim loses his own identity to the point that he doesn't even complain anymore about being a slave. How sad. He becomes limited to dreaming about having an easier life as a slave, but loses the capacity to even dream about once again living as a truly free person. Dear friends, that is what's really going on here. We are all trapped, enslaved on some level, stuck. And our job is not to relax. Our job is to try to break out. Our job is to try to soar out of the box that we're in, not to try to make our gullous life more comfortable, but to try to become free, truly free, to break out of anything that is holding us down. And we certainly cannot relax because this is much more than just a song. Yeah,